in any event, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about science and religion. It's a, obviously, it's a very important topic. Uh, the first thing to know is I just want to point out a historical observation. And that is, as there have been advances in science, uh, Christianity has had a lot more difficulty assimilating them than Judaism. Uh, Judaism has tended, what you might say, to roll with the punches, meaning Judaism has tended to manage to incorporate science within a framework of Torah and religion, as opposed to the Catholic Church in particular, that always had tremendous conflicts with things. So for example, going back to uh, Copernicus, when Copernicus in the uh, 1500s uh, tried to show that the, uh, what's called heliocentric, that the Earth uh, revolves around the sun instead of the sun around the Earth, which from our perspective, it looks like the sun goes around the Earth, and the Catholic Church went crazy over that because uh, the whole tachlis of creation is man, and how can you put man on the periphery? Uh, Myrala Prague just accepts it. Myrala actually no, lived. Huh? Yeah, Myrala. I really thought there was something in the, in the Talmud about the um, sun going around the earth. Is there, is there something else? Well, 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 yes, but you have to understand that uh, when, when, when Chazal say various references, they're often describing things as they appear from our perspective because God set up the world to teach us certain things. So Chazal were not necessarily talking about physical realities. They were talking about spiritual lessons that emerge from the appearances of things. Now, even the way we talk today, we talk about sunrise, sunset, even though scientifically it doesn't work. Now, I know... The Rebbe took a bit of a radical position here, a very unusual position. The Rebbe actually claimed that because of relativity, <laughs> you actually cannot say if the sun goes around the earth or the earth goes around the sun. So he said that even Copernicus should not be accepted yeah, as an absolute, absolute scientific reality. So that was actually a very radical, radical teaching. But I think most uh, Jewish uh, scholars and most Gedolim have accepted Copernicus. And Maral, in particular, just to give you a little history, Maral, by the way, he was before the Baal Shem Tov, so the Maral is not a chassid, but the Maral was the great-great-grandfather uh, of the Alter Rebbe. I mean, the Alter Rebbe is a direct descendant of the Maral, uh, and that's why the Maral, for many, many years, the Maral's writings were only learned among chassidim. Now, Ruch Hashem, it's spread over, over the place, but it was chassidists that preserved the Maral's writings for hundreds of years. So the Maral lived at a time of great astronomical discoveries. Uh, Copernicus, uh, Kepler, Johannes Kepler, uh, how do you pronounce it, Tayo Brake, is that how you pronounce it? Again, these are astronomers in Czechoslovakia and Poland. So, uh, so as opposed to the Catholic Church that went crazy with Copernicus, Maral was able to accept it. Or with Galileo. Remember, Galileo, had various uh, theories about motion and, and, and gravity, so the Catholic Church forced him to recant, or they would kill him. And he officially recanted, but then he muttered under his breath, everybody heard it, but I'm still right. You know, <laughs> how, how he got away with that, I don't know, but he actually said, he said okay, I re retract everything I wrote. But I'm so the point is that Judaism never sees science as much of a threat to religion as maybe Christianity does. And, and, and the reason for that in a very general way, I'm gonna give you a very general thing, which doesn't answer anything specific yet, is that we recognize that the purpose of Torah, the purpose of divine wisdom, is not to give us a physical description 
of how God created the universe. That's what science does. Science is a chachma, and through science we could try to approximate. Of course, not that science is right. Science is a process, right? You have to be very careful that science itself shouldn't become your religion. But science is a process, scientific method, to try to understand how things work. But Torah is about why things work, right? So you could talk about a Big Bang and you can talk about all of these other things. But if you ask a scientist, why did all of this happen? A scientist will tell you that is beyond religion. I'm sorry, that is beyond science. Science doesn't tell me the why of things. Science at most can tell, at most can tell me the what of things. So as a result, Torah and science are both revelations of Hashem. But they are like apples and oranges, meaning to say they are revealing different aspects of Hashem's divinity. One is revealing the wonder of the unfolding of the laws of nature, which are truly miraculous. And the Rambam actually writes, the Rambam writes that through the study of physics and biology and understanding how life works and how the planets revolve, one can really see the wonder and the greatness of God. But, in a sense, that does not give you a moral code, that does not give you ethics, that does not give you values. And that's where the other aspect of divine revelation, which is even higher, comes, and that is the revelation of the Torah. So you see, if you understand that Torah and science are addressing two different spheres of reality, then by definition your contradictions are going to be less because one is talking about one thing and one is talking about the other thing and they don't necessarily have to be in, in contradiction. So that is why Judaism, as a general, again this is a very general statement, does not have as much trouble with science as maybe some other religions which try to use their Bible or whatever it is to give you a literal blow-by-blow blow account of creation. The Ramban writes that all of my separations is a very, very deep secret. And the Torah at most is giving you hints to things. And it, even, though it's, even though from our perspective it looks like a lot of details, but in fact it is almost, you know, it is literally less than the tip of an iceberg. The Torah, and, and, and so when I walk away from Bereshus, what I have to understand is there's Hashem in the world, there's Hashem, the Ein Sof, He created everything, and how he did it, I don't really have to understand. That maybe science will help me a little bit, maybe it won't. But the point is not to walk away with a scientific understanding of creation from the Torah. Rather, the thing that you walk away with is there is Hashem that is the creator of everything. How he did it? Well, remember, if you have an infinite God, an infinite God can have an infinite toolbox. Right? Hashem has many, many tools. Hashem has tools beyond what we could count. So if it's this tool, that tool, this tool, whatever it is, meaning what matter of faith turns upon the particulars of the tools that Hashem used, as long as you believe in Hashem. Okay? So this is a very general statement. You know, I don't know if any of you ever read uh, Sherlock Holmes. I don't know how popular yeah. Sherlock Holmes is these days. But... Um, I, I remember that, I mean, last time I read Sherlock Holmes, I, I probably was in sixth grade, but, but uh, I still remember a particular uh, little uh, story there. Well, you know, Sherlock Holmes is this, like, super genius detective, right? And his assistant is uh, Dr. Watson. And at some point, he's talking to Sherlock Holmes, 
and he discovers, Dr. Watson discovers that Sherlock Holmes didn't know about Copernicus. Sherlock Holmes thought that the earth went around, the, that the sun rather went around the earth. So Watson is very astounded. And Watson says, you know, Mr. Holmes, I mean, you're such a brilliant person. How could you not know about Copernicus? And uh, Sherlock Holmes said, in my line of work, what difference does it make? Meaning, who cares if it's this or that? Which means, in a lot of scientific issues, okay, let it be that, let it be that. It doesn't affect my amuna. I believe Hashem made the world. I believe Hashem made the universe. I believe that without Hashem, nothing could exist. He did it this way, he did it that way, he did it that way. What, 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 in other words, what did, I mean, again, as a scientific matter, I might be interested in, but as a religious matter, it, it doesn't make a difference, right? So it's not, I'm not going to, you know, it's not going to kill me because he did it this way instead of that way. Hashem could do any, any way he wants, and we understand that my separatious is not always going to be literal. So now, let me just mention one famous, I mean, not what, no, there are many, many questions. <coughs> let me just mention one big question and give you the different answers. And I'm sure you probably did discuss this, so forgive me for, for repeating it. That is, the age of the Earth is a very big issue, right? Age of the, or age of the universe, maybe, even more than that. Uh, according to our Jewish tradition, our Messiah, we are in the year 5082, meaning it has been 5,782 years since the creation of Adam and Chava on Rosh Hashanah. Now, granted, that was the sixth day of creation, so there were five days before that. So technically, it's 5,782 years plus five days. Okay, so yeah, don't forget those five days. But okay, but scientists will tell you that the age of the Earth is billions of years old, and we have fossils, and we have, uh, which, uh, and we have something called carbon dating, by, by, by which you can measure the rate of deterioration of, of uh, radioactive elements, and then you work backwards, and uh, you come up with billions of years, uh, 13 billion years uh, is one estimate, and then you have dinosaurs and fossils, millions and millions of years old. Uh, how could you possibly talk about 5,782 years, right? That's a big, big question that, that, that uh, everybody has. So there are many, many answers to this. Uh, now, now, again, when I say many answers, the point I'm, I'm making is this. We don't have a definitive answer from Chazal, meaning I can't tell you what is the answer. There are what are called mahalchim. Mahalchim are approaches, things that you can think about, things that different rabbis, many of some of which are modern, some of which are a little older, have developed as ideas and possibilities. So I'm not sitting here telling you what the Torah says about the age of the earth, but I'm just telling you different approaches that have been suggested. And based on that, you can live as a believing religious Jew and still uh, live within a world of scientific discovery. So, uh, Why is there no definitive thing from Chazal? Just because it came up too late? Uh, well, Chazal didn't want to talk... Well, well actually, there, there will be some references in Kabbalah in Chazal, but in the, in the Nigla part of Torah, uh, people didn't have those questions, so Chazal didn't want to open up boxes necessarily. They considered this to be part of the concealed teachings of the Torah, which would get revealed when generations needed it. That's why Kabbalah itself got more revealed. Right? Chassidus, right? Chassidus is, is a particular giloy of Kabbalah, which became necessary 
for generations as we're getting closer to Mashiach. So that's also true for a lot of scientific issues. Chazal didn't necessarily want to open up difficult questions if people were not aware of it. People didn't have any, any particular, particular issue. Huh? What, what is what is Chazal? Yeah. Chazal is an abbreviation. Chachameinu are sages. Zichronam livracha, their memory should be a blessing. So we only use Chazal for the rabbis of the Mishnah, Gemara, or Zohar, Medrash or Zohar. Uh, for example, we wouldn't call Rashi as great as Rashi is. We would not call Rashi Chazal. Chazal is, uh, you know, the Mishnah, Gemara, Zohar, Medrash. Sometimes uh, they use Razal instead of Chazal. Razal just means Raboseinu, Zichronu Mufrach. Same thing, Chachameinu, Raboseinu. The, the, um, the Midrash times came after the Gemara? Yeah, no, so the Midrash time is around the same time because uh, the, the rabbis of the Midrash are the Tanoim and Amoraim of the Mishnah and the Gemara. So it's the same rabbis. You'll see the same names. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, Rashi is already later. Rashi, Rambam, Ramban, the, the, they're Rishonim, they are after, after that. Okay, so now, uh, here is the thing. Uh, the Rebbe himself uh, talked about this. Uh, he wrote a law, big, big letter to a, I think, a, a, stu- a graduate student in physics back in the, uh, all the way back in the 1950s. I, I, it was like very, at the very beginning of, of his, of his Nasius, and maybe the 60s, I don't remember the exact date. Uh, so the Rebbe uh, offered a, a, a two theories, two ideas, two ideas. I say, when I say theory, I don't mean to say it's not founded, just it's a machshava. Uh, machshava number one is that the whole uh, dating of the earth by carbon dating presupposes a uniform rate of, uh, of degrading, meaning to say, you measure how fast it takes to degrade now and you assume that's what it was all the time and then you work backwards and you figure out, figure out how much time it took to get to this particular rate. But carbon dating works only if you assume constancy of uh, degradation. And the Rebbe said because of cataclysmic events like the worldwide flood and the like, and unusual pressure in the earth and the like, then these processes could have been sped up or they could have been slowed up, uh, slowed down. And therefore, as a result, uh, the extrapolation from present to millions of years ago would not be justified. So that's one argument, that carbon dating itself may be inaccurate uh, because various cataclysmic earth-shaking events can change the rate of uh, the degradation. Again, if you study the carbon dating, you, you'll understand that it does depend indeed on extrapolation from present rate to assume that it was always that way. That is the Rebbe's first point. The second point he made was God created an old earth. Now, that, that's a very interesting point. Let's imagine the following. When we look at oil, uh, oil or coal, so we see that as a result of decaying, decaying animals and plants over so many years. Now, our assumption is, though, when God created the world, God put in a world that already had oil and, uh, and coal and redwood trees. I mean, Adam and Chava themselves were created as... Adult. 
fully grown people. So, if you would have been there the moment Adam came into the world, and you would be asked, how old is Adam? You would say, oh, Adam must be 30 years old, even though Adam is only one second old. He was created as an adult. So the Rebbe said, we can take that much further. Hashem created redwood trees. If you would have cut up, cut up that tree, you would have seen rings making it 500 years old. Hashem created coal, which would have the appearance of being hundreds of thousands of years old. Meaning if Hashem created a completed world, the world was created in an old state, in a mature state. So as a result, the fact that things look like a million years old doesn't mean they are a million years old. It means that they were created a, mil- a million years old. They were created with that age. Right? So those are the uh, two points I think the Rebbe made. One is that the rate of carbon dating is not a constant rate, or at least we can't prove it's a constant rate. That's called uh, the weakness of extrapolation. I think he actually uses, <laughs> uses that phrase. Extrapolating from the present to the past is a speculation that is unproven, and there are reasons to assume that that can't work. And uh, the second point he made is the earth was cre- the universe was created old, and as a result, things were put into the world that already had an age of a million years, if you would have measured it, or, or whatever it is. So, so that's uh, I think again I have to, I haven't looked at that letter recently, but I, 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 it's a long letter, but I, I believe those are the two main the kudos the Rebbe gave. Now, there are other arguments which the Rebbe didn't like, I have to be honest, but I'll tell you what the other arguments are, although the Rebbe disagreed with, with some of them. And that is, some have made the argument that the six days of creation do not have to be six 24-hour days. <coughs> which means, even though from Adam, we count 5782. But the five days, or even the six days until Adam, that is not just 24-hour days. That could have been millions and even billions of, of years. So Einachinami, from Adam to now, is 5782. But those previous days didn't have to be 24-hour days. And the logic of that is this. What is the definition of a day, actually? A day is not 24 hours. A day is a... 360 degree rotation of the earth on its axis. Do you understand that? The scientific definition of a day is when the earth rotates 365 degrees on its axis. It happens to be that a rotation on an axis is approximately, not even exact, 24 hours. But it's not the 24 hours that's the definition of a day. It's the rotation of the axis. So it would have been possible in those formative days of creation that perhaps the Earth was turning faster, which would actually mean uh, that in five days of 24 hours, you might have had you know, million, you know, millions of rotations, or vice versa. If it was turning slowly, maybe one day was a million years. I mean, for example, other planets, I'm sure you've heard this, uh, they say, uh, on Venus, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you know, in Venus, a day might be a week. What does that mean? The rotation speed is different. So if it takes five days for there to be a 360-degree rotation, 
one day is five days. Right? So if, even if we assume once man is on the scene, the laws of nature are the way we have them, but until there's man, you know, anything could happen. There could have been a slow rotation. So five days could have been. Now, I know that, here's the thing, the Rebbe didn't like that because he said, once you say that the days are not 24 hours, then uh, how can you talk about Shabbos as being holy for, as a day of 24 hours if indeed the days were not 24 hours? But I'm thinking out loud, I think maybe the way I said it might be a partial answer. Because I was suggesting once man showed up, the days were 24 hours. So the first Shabbos was 24 hours. It's the five days before man that might be a different, a different length. Yeah. Do you know who came up with this idea? I mean, the first one? Um, I, I, you know, I, I'd have to check. I, 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 could, I could get back to you. I, mean, I don't remember. I mean, this has been around a, a long time. This is not a... It's not in Chazal, per favorish, but, but uh, certainly there are... We shine him that talk about it already after after Chazam. So that's one idea that the age of the earth might be a function of uh, different lengths of days, and particularly the first three days. Because remember, we didn't have a sun and a moon until the fourth day. So the markers of day and night were a totally different marker then. So uh, it could have been that the first three days could have been uh, billions of years or whatever it is. Right. So that's another approach. But let me give you an approach uh, from Rav Aryeh Kaplan, Zechariah Levracha. I don't know if you've heard of uh, Rav Kaplan. He was uh, a very good man. He died uh, young. Uh, he was uh, a makubal. He translated many things. You probably, I'm sure you have. Rav Aryeh Kaplan, yeah. I'm sure you have some uh, svarim here from Rav Aryeh Kaplan. Mm-hmm. When did he live? Uh, he died like 1980. Oh. So he, he lived in this, you know, this generation more or less. Um, he was, uh, he was a Valchuva, but he was a Makobal. He, he did a lot of work for NCSY. He translated many things. Um, he died young. He wrote three books on meditation, which are interesting. I don't know if you have them. Uh, Jewish Meditation, Meditation and the Bible, and Meditation and the Kabbalah, in which he tried to show that meditation was, was part of uh, the Messiah. Here, too, the Rebbe had an interesting, just as, as we're talking, the Rebbe had an interesting approach about meditation. Uh, the Rebbe uh, supported uh, meditation, but he had a different take. He, he wanted it to be used for relaxation and not for spirituality. It, it's an interesting point. Most of the time, when most people talk about meditation and Judaism, they try to use meditation to get you into spiritual states. And they try to show how meditation can get you closer to Hashem. Uh, so Rabbi Kaplan did it, it kind of approached it that way. The Rebbe didn't, didn't like that. I think Rebbe, maybe, the Rebbe, maybe the Rebbe was afraid that because meditation was kind of derived from Eastern religions, so when you use it as a tool for spirituality, it can push you in the wrong direction. But he did endorse it as a tool for relaxation and health, and he felt that Hasidus and Torah will be your spirituality. And the meditation will help you uh, calm down and be relaxed. Mm-hmm. It was kind of unusual. It was an unusual approach because most of the from writers, the religious writers on meditation, did not go with that mahalach. They went with the idea of, of using it to enhance your spirituality directly. So again, I'll, I'll leave it to you to sort all of that, sort all of that out. 
but be it as it may, Rabbi Kaplan was uh, really a very, very great man, and he died tragically young. He had 10 children, and he died, uh, I think, like 45. Uh, my totally unfounded speculation, maybe I shouldn't say this, is that he writes in his books about Kabbalah that one should be very careful not to delve too deeply in the meditation of Kabbalah because then your neshama may leave your body and won't want to come back. So he actually says, when you're doing Kabbalistic meditations, you should have a buddy, like going swimming. You should have a buddy who, that if you're going too far out can slap you or pour water on you and bring you back. He writes, he writes this. So my totally, I have no source of this at all, but I have a, a little bit of a gut reaction that maybe this is what perhaps happened to him, that he was uh, so deeply in, in these meditations that indeed the very thing that he wrote about happened. And it's no accident. Great Mekubalim died very young. I mean, the Arizal died at 39. Rav Moshe Kurdivero from the generation before died at 48. There were many, many great Mekubalim who uh, Badafka died uh, at a young age because the Neshama is coming into such a contact with HaKadosh Baruch that it can no longer stay in the guf. In fact, the, the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya, very, very beautiful, moving, moving passage. He even writes at some point, he says, I don't know if you came across this, he says, I can't really describe this in writing. You have to feel it. I mean, he, 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 he explains it, and then he says, can't really talk about this in writing. But he said that sometimes the neshama doesn't want to be on this earth. The neshama just wants to be with Hashem. But because he loves Hashem so much, and it's Hashem's will that he be in this earth to make a dira b'tachtainen, so in a sense, out of the love for Hashem, the neshama gives up what it loves the most, is to be out of this earth. It's a fascinating, fascinating idea. In other words, it's like a person that says, the most important thing in my life is to be with a certain person. But if that person wants me not to be with them, to do something else, out of my love for that person, I will give up that. He says, the neshama gives up what it wants most out of its love for HaKadosh Baruch to make a dira, dira b'tachtayim. And then Dr. Rebbe says, I, I can't really explain this, he says. <laughs> he says, but this is the uh, feeling. You get the real feeling that this is what the Alter Rebbe himself was, was feeling. And as I say, this is why Mekubalim died young, <laughs> because their neshama was so connected, it could not stay. So the Alter Rebbe had to kind of have a superhuman strength to keep himself rooted in this world. It was not a natural thing. See, most of us, it's the opposite. We're so rooted to this earth, you know, we want, we want to stay. He says the tzaddik has a different thing, you know, he really wants to go, but he'll stay because that's Hashem's, that's Hashem's will. Okay. So anyway, uh, this was a little introduction to Ravari Kaplan and Kabbalah dying young, so be careful when you do a heavy Kabbalah and the like. But Ravari Kaplan brings like this. There is a medrash, and here maybe we have one remez in Chazal that might be the mafteach to this. The medrash actually says that Hashem made many worlds before this world that he destroyed meaning Bereshus is describing this world. The six days of creation is starting with this world. But there were other worlds that Hashem made that he destroyed. Now, 
what does that mean, other world? So most of us kind of imagine it like other planets that he destroyed. But if Kaplan says, who says it has to be other planets? Maybe it's referring to there was an Earth and there was an ice age or a meteorite shower, meaning there were successive destructions of the world that happened over and over and over again. And Beratius only begins with this world. But there, which means even if you say 5782, this world, but there could have been those other worlds which didn't have Adam. Uh, and that could be dinosaur fossils from those other worlds and everything else. And I'll even give you the numbers about how old that could be. That'd be a fascinating, amazing thing. Uh, so this is not, see, this is not redefining the six days of creation. The six days of creation are 24-hour days. But all of the stuff are the remnants of the prior worlds that Hashem created. Bore Olamos, this is from Chazal, Bore Olamos, Umachrivan. He created the worlds and he destroyed them. Now you may ask an obvious question. Why did Hashem create all these worlds that he was going to destroy? First of all, even this world he destroyed, except for Noah, but, uh, but the other worlds were totally destroyed. So I once heard from uh, Rev Soloveitchik, uh, Rev Yosef Dov Soloveitchik of uh, Yeshiva University. Um, by the way, he has also an interesting story. He uh, went to University of Berlin along with the Rebbe. They knew each other from Berlin. So uh, he tells the story. He used to tell the story that he got the Rebbe out of prison. Uh, the Rebbe was in jail because the Rebbe was giving a, it was poor him. This is before the Rebbe was a Rebbe. He was just he was a student. <laughs> He was speaking about Purim publicly, and in Germany you needed a permit for everything. You know, if you didn't, you know, you give a speech and you didn't have uh, a license, you get arrested. So he said that the Rebbe got arrested for giving a drasha without a without a permit. So Rav Salvechik said he bailed him out of jail. And then he told the Rebbe, he says, "Now I know you're going to be Rebbe because I know that every Chabad Rebbe has to has to be in jail." <laughs> he says, "So now I know. Now you're Yitzchak." Okay. Uh, okay. But anyway, um, Rav Soloveitchik, uh, in the 1960s, he lost, uh, he, had, he was in Avil three times uh, uh, in one year. He lost his uh, brother, he lost his mother, he lost his wife, all in one year. And he was broken. He, I mean, although he taught for a number of years, but he was never the same after that. It really broke him a tremendous amount, as one would imagine. And he said, at the end of the last of his three shivas, uh, why did Hashem make so many worlds that he destroyed? Because Hashem wants to teach us that even if our world is destroyed, we go on and and create. Because Hashem had worlds that were destroyed and he went on and created. That's what a Jew has to do. A Jew has to know that even if the world is destroyed, you go on. And of course, that's the message of Klal Yisrael. That's what happened after the Holocaust. And that's what we do as individuals when we go through tragedies and the like, to go on and create. Okay. So now, Rev Kaplan augments this with uh, a passage from one of the Sifrei Kabbalah that goes all the way back to the 1200s. May even, may even be before the Zohar was revealed. And it says there's a doctrine that's called the doctrine of Shemitah. 
Now, Who what is this written by? Huh? Who is this written by? Um, I'm trying to remember. This was uh, Sefer Hakana. It, it, it's a, it's a Makubo, but I don't remember the name, but it's Sefer Hakana. And uh, he talks about the doctrine of Shemitah. Now, what is the doctrine of Shemitah? Here's, here's the doctrine of Shemitah. The doctrine is that just as we have seven day, six days of the week followed by Shabbos, we have six years followed by Shemitah. And then when we have seven Shemitahs, we have Yovel, the Jubilee year. Not today, today we don't keep it, but that's how the Torah does it. So too, he says, the world goes through a cycle of 6,000 years, and then there's 1,000 years of Geula, but then the world gets recreated at a higher Madrega for another cycle. In other words, the doctrine of Shemitah says that the world will be recreated at a higher Madrega every 7,000 years. So 6,000 years, 1,000 years of Yemot Mashiach. But then it gets recreated at a spiritually higher level of 6,000 years, and then 1,000 years of a Mashiach. And, now this is, some people say this is heretical, so uh, just, yeah, yeah, that the Torah itself will assume, the same letters of the Torah will assume different configurations based on the Madrega. So in a physical world, don't eat meat and milk. In a spiritual world, the letters will have a different spiritual, well, well, it'll be the same spiritual message, but it'll take a different form. Now again, some, some consider that to be heresy, but nevertheless, this is called the doctrine of the Shemitah. Now, so the question becomes this, that actually means that the world will exist for a total, in different iterations, for a total of 49,000 years, and then you will have the Yovel, the great Jubilee, which is the final perfection of everything. Now, which Shemitah are we in? Which Shemitah are we in? So this Sefer says, I don't, I don't remember the proof, we are in the sixth Shemitah. The sixth Shemitah, meaning to say, there have been five complete cycles before us, which is a total of 35,000 years, meaning Chumash Bereshis begins with 35,000 years of prehistory. Okay, that doesn't help you that much. 35,000 years of prehistory. Ah, so here's the final step in the puzzle. Since those years did not have human beings in them, we measure those years by God years rather than man years. What's a God year? So listen to this. It says in Tehillim what a God year is. David Melech says to Hashem, a thousand years in uh, your eyes is like one day. So it turns out, according to David Melech's equation, a thousand man years equals one day of God. Indeed, the Gemara says such a thing. Yomo So now, I hope you can follow the arithmetic here. If one day of God is a thousand years, then one year of God is 365,000 years. Because a year is 365 days. A day of God is a thousand years. 365 days of God is 365 
thousand years. Now, if before Maiseb Reishis, we have five Shemitah cycles of 35,000 years, then the age of the earth is going to be 365,000 times 35,000. <laughs> so get out your calculators. 365,000 times 35,000, I think you get 13 billion years, something like that. Last time I, I did this. Um, so, amazing, amazing, amazing that based on the doctrine of Shemitos, you actually come up with a 13 billion uh, year period for the creation of the universe. And, and again, I, I don't know if the Rebbe would accept this, but this, the, the beauty of this is you're not changing the length of the six days of creation because all of this is before the creation. The six days of creation, like the Rebbe said, are going to be 24-hour days. But we're looking at Borei Olamos Machriban, the world that existed before the creation. The other Shemitah cycles, right? The other Shemitah cycles uh, are, um, are based on God years rather than man years. Now, uh, this is called the, uh, the idea, the Shita, or the doctrine of Shemitos. But uh, Rabbi Kaplan points out that the Ari, both the Arizal and Rav Moshe did not accept the doctrine of Shemitos. Uh, <coughs> so this was a Makobol. He was a Makobol who, who did this, but this was not accepted by many of the great, great Gedolim of Kabbalah. But then Rabbi Kaplan stated something which in itself is very, very controversial, but very interesting. Rabbi Kaplan said, in matters of hashkofa, as opposed to halacha, he says, there is no final psak halacha. This is what he said. He said, so consequently, uh, if there's a machlokis or something, mutter on Shabbos or rasher on Shabbos, I got to accept the halacha. But if there's the doctrine of Shemitah, which is not a question of halacha, it's a question of hashkofa, he felt that a, as long as there's a source for it, one could follow whatever hashkafa makes sense to. That itself was enormously controversial. Uh, many people say that's not true either, but uh, I just wanted to share it with you just so you'll aware of it. So, so again, my point is not to give you the answer. Right? The point is not the answer. Uh, nobody knows. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, uh, whatever the answer, I mean, no, I can live with ambiguity. As long as I know Hashem is in charge, so there's a lot of things I don't understand. I, mean, I don't know how a car works. You know, there's a lot of things we don't know, but we know Hashem, is, uh, Hashem knows, right? So that's kind of good enough. <coughs> but the point is that you at least need to be aware of the fact that there are approaches in traditional Judaism that allow you to deal with this. So we have, again, the Rebbe's approach of the old earth and the fact that the rate of disintegration and carbon dating is not constant. Uh, we have the variation in the length of the six days of creation based on rotation of the earth. Okay, I, I can do that. Uh, if you want, I could even send, send an email to somebody and uh, you, could, you could distribute it. And, uh, uh, and then we have Ravari Kaplan's uh, interesting approach based on the doctrine of Shemitah, which that's my favorite. I actually love that approach, but on the other hand, <laughs> if the Arizal didn't hold of it, you know, it's a little difficult to to say that it's true, but, but nevertheless, there is a Makar for it. There are sources for it going back to the twelve to the twelve hundreds. Yeah. Just a couple of term questions. Yeah. So you said this in this doctrine of Shemitah's 
the seven cycles and the sixth. Right. That's so we're in the sixth cycle. Right. You were saying about the seventh of each cycle was the Mashiach. What was that? What yes. Was that? In other words, the way it works is the world exists for 6,000 years and then you have a Shabbos, which is a messianic cycle. Ah, okay. But then the world is destroyed and reborn at a higher level. That's the doctrine of Shemitah. Except uh, Hashem promised you, Hashem didn't promise until this, that in the Right, 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 okay. right, right. The other question is, what's Hashkata? Oh yes, so Hashkata is like Jewish philosophy. Oh, okay. So uh, Rabbi Kaplan made the argument, which is a very, very Nogeya argument today, very relevant argument today, I'll mention a few areas, that he said that when it comes to halacha, what you have to do, we can have a definitive psaq that you must follow. But when it comes to hashkafa, Jewish philosophy, he says there can be, you know, there's not a final halacha there. So Rambam will say this, somebody will say this, you know, so we don't know. So he says a person has a freedom to follow the hashkafa that is um, most logical to them. But again, as I say, that, that is a very, very, uh, in fact, uh, I don't know if the Rebbe ever addressed it in those terms. I, my, my guess is the Rebbe would not, would not accept that uh, as a true statement. But, uh, but that's what uh, Rabbi Kaplan said, and some people are saying that today. For example, there's a fellow, I guess it's not Lashon Hara because this is so public. There's a fellow, uh, Rabbi Natan Slifkin, maybe you've heard of him. I'm not sure if you have any books of his in the library. Uh, Rabbi Slifkin was a very, very, you know, is a very capable person. He has a biblical museum in Beit Shemesh, uh, Tanakh, Museum of Tanakh. And he wrote some books about evolution and about uh, this and that. Uh, and he got in big trouble. He got uh, put in Cheyram. And even though he uh, quoted many, many early sources, but they say we don't follow those sources, etc. So he kind of uh, used to be Haredi, now he's, he used to be Noson Slifkin, now he's Natan Slifkin because uh, he kind of left uh, the Haredi world uh, and uh, went into the Yumi world. So he really was castigated. He was drawn and quartered. I mean, he really was mercilessly uh, criticized uh, for this. And uh, his position was that, hey, you know, uh, this is a matter of hashkafa. This is not a matter of halacha. I, I keep Shabbos like you. I keep kosher like you. I, I keep all the mitzvahs like, like you. So I have these views. So he took the position there was no psak halacha on matters of hashkafa, but... Uh, a lot of the rabbis disagreed. <laughs> they said there was, there was. And they put his books in Cheyram and excommunication and, uh, and everything else. Yeah. Um, this last idea about Mashiach. I'm sorry, yeah, you said, yeah. Yes, so how does the idea, the Kabbalistic idea of, of the word of come into well, it? Well, yeah, yeah, yes. Well, well, the word of, oh, okay, yeah, that's correct. Uh, but the world of Tohu, uh, which is, uh, th- those are referring to processes that were totally non-physical. Uh, the doctrine of Shemitos maybe is taking the idea of Toho and it's turning it into more of a physical mechanism. So it is very connected, but, but it is different in the sense that it, it, it physicalizes the Toho into actual cycles of material world that existed. That's how you get the fossils, the dinosaurs. See, in the pure idea of Eilam HaToyo, of the Arizal, you don't have anything physical. All of this was pre, uh, pre-Atzilus, it was pre-everything. Uh, so that, that, I think, would be the big difference. How physical do you make that prior reality? Because, as I say, uh, the doctrine of Shemitah is explaining dinosaurs and really physical, physical things. Now... What was yeah. the number that, that um, the doctrine of Shemitah... 
What was the what? What was the number at the end after all the So, so I, I believe you come up with 13 billion. I believe. I, in other words, basically you can multiply it if, you're, if your calculator is, uh, can do enough zeros. It's 365,000 times 35,000. 365,000 times 35,000. And that will get, and then you'll add another 50. How much is it? 12. I mean, it's 12.8. Okay, that, that's that's close enough. Uh, that's pretty close enough. <laughs> twelve point eight. You know, at that with those numbers, you know, thirteen, twelve point eight. You know, it's uh-huh. like uh, you know, you're close enough. And then you add, of course. Uh, now we're man years, so it's fifty-seven eighty-two man year plus fifty-seven eighty-two, and uh, that'll bring you. And of course, Mashiach can come earlier uh, than six thousand. Six thousand is the maximum. So, as far as we know, all the other shemitas before there was Adam went through a full six thousand and then a thousand years. They were full Shemitahs. Our Shemitah can be shorter, actually, because we can have Mashiach earlier. Right Right now it's 5,782. Uh, Mashiach can come tomorrow, etc. Right? So then your, your Shemitah is going to be shorter, but okay, but that's, that's only going to be a few years because we're dealing with man years at this point. It's not going to be a big deal. If the other world, worlds were destroyed, yeah. then how can scientists say that this world is 12.8 billion years? Right, so, so the understanding would be, what Rav Kaplan is trying to say is, destroyed doesn't mean vanishing, like disappears. But it means like an ice age, like scientists say, that, uh, that the world was destroyed, meaning all life on earth was destroyed by an ice age, by a meteorite shower. So therefore, uh, the remnants of those prior worlds could still be in the ground. In other words, you're understanding Chorban not as vanishing, but as destruction. And indeed, that's what scientists say. I mean, scientists say that, how did the dinosaurs die? Now, why aren't there dinosaurs? So they say, uh, dinosaurs died, uh, a meteorite shower, an ice age, you know, different things. So uh, that, that sort of Kaplan says, that's exactly what Borei Olam Now, the truth of the matter is, this was also said by, not the doctrine of Shemitas, but the idea that dinosaurs may be from prior worlds. Uh, this was said by a great 19th century uh, Rav, it's Ferris Yisrael. He wrote a great, great parish on Mishnayis, of Yisrael Lipschitz. And uh, in his parish in Mishnah, he says this, and in some of the more recent reprintings, they took it out. So you're not going to find it. Uh, you, yeah, you probably have the Mishnayis with his commentary. I'll, I'll check if this is in there or not, because sometimes they take out these controversial uh, things. But he actually put it in, this idea that the dinosaurs come from uh, the prior, the prior worlds. Yeah. Where was the doctrine of Shemitah? Where did that originate? So this originated from the work of a Makobo in the 1200s. Uh, it's called Sefer Hakana. Um, if, if you want, uh, you, you could check yourself. Uh, this is all in an essay by Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan called "The Age of the Universe." Now, in truth, in truth, uh, I changed it a little bit simply because, and I, I must be wrong, the nu- I mean, he presented all of this, but then the numbers he came up with didn't match his numbers. The multi- it, seemed to me, it seemed to me, again, I'm probably wrong, there was a mistake in his multiplication. So I, I just a final multiplication. So I presented it uh, in a way that I think the multiplication works out. So if you read his, it's going to be a little different. 
than mine, but but the same the idea is basically there. The doctrine of Shemitos is is basically there. Okay, so uh, again, it, it's an amazing thing. Therefore, that uh, the Torah works. The Torah, you know, again, uh, the Torah is MS. Now, I do want to point out once again the Rebbe's first point that carbon dating may not be accurate. That's a very important point because you see, we often are kind of almost hypnotized into assuming whatever science says is right. And then I got to figure out how to reconcile the Torah. But you know, it's not true. Science can make plenty of mistakes and and, and a lot of the scientific techniques can be wrong. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. All I'm saying is, even if you accept science, things work out. But I'm I'm not saying you have to accept science. You can say science is totally wrong too. Carbon dating may be absolutely incorrect. Now, this gives rise to a second question. That is, okay, so let's assume we could figure out the 12.8 billion years of the universe. That's fine. But what about how long man has been around? That's a problem too. Because the one thing we do say is, Adam Harishain is only 5,788 years. And those are man years, right? Now, we got a problem because we do know, okay, man has not been around for billions of years, scientists say, but man has been around, few hundred, uh, scientists say, a few hundred thousand years. So this is a separate question, meaning this is not about the age of the universe, but this is about the age of man. How long has there been homo sapiens? How long has there been human beings? Right, that's going to be a problem. So here... There was a great, great, uh, this, I, I'm going to check out, I'm going to try to find the Rebbe's letter and send it to you. It's a long letter. I don't think the Rebbe touched upon this. I, th- I think that uh, the questions that the student asked him were about age of the universe, not age of man. But age of man is, is a problem too. Uh, but again, carbon dating will be the same answer. If carbon dating is not accurate, it's not accurate for human fossils either. Okay. But putting, uh, putting that idea aside... Uh, there was a Rav in Bnei Brak. Uh, his name was Rav Gedalia Nadel, N-A-D-E-L. He was a very, very great, great person. He was a Talmud of the Chazonish. Uh, but he was a little unusual in that, uh, you know, he was so great that, you know, even if he said things that were controversial, nobody could attack him. Unlike Rabbi Slipkin, who was a younger guy, and they could pillory him when he says things that were controversial, Rabbi Nadal was kind of untouchable in a sense because of his chashivas, but he also said things that were very, very radical on this. And he suggests an approach that Adam was not the first homo sapien. Adam was the first person with a divine soul, with a nefesh elokis. Meaning to say, when Hashem created animals or whatever, he created humanoid creatures, just like apes. He created intelligent uh, things with tool-making ability, whatever it would be. And indeed, this could have been a very superior animal, very superior animal, but it did not have a godly essence. So that could have been years and years ago. Again, going back, uh, this is assuming, this only works if the days of creation are not 24 hours. So the animals could have been created millions of years ago. And then on Rosh Hashanah, Hashem chose one of those human human animals 
and breathed into him a divine soul. And that is when man became not just an, an intelligent animal, but man became godly. And when we say 5782, 50, that's from the creation of godly man, mm -hmm. not physical man. This is what Rav Nadal wants to say. Now the question is, that actually means that after other Mauritian was created, there were other human beings who may have looked like him. What happened to them? Were they destroyed in the marble? I guess they were destroyed in the marble. So essentially you had these other human beings around. But they want to say that this explains why when Adam names all the animals, he's looking for someone he could connect to, he could mate with. That's when Hashem made Chava. Now, what's Adam's thinking? He's going to mate with a cow? Going to mate with a dog? Or what is Adam looking at? He says, he wants to mate with an animal. So they say, no. He's looking at all those human beings that a, 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 day, a day ago, he was part of them. But now he knows he's different. Now he knows. He can't go home again, so to speak. That's when Hashem made him Chava, who also has a godly soul. You see, he's looking at other human beings. Yesterday, you were my buddy. I was part of the group. Now I'm different. Now I'm different. Very amazing, amazing idea that there were other types of human beings that were around. This is while he was naming the animals? Yeah, well, he's saying that uh, he was, when he says Adam was naming the animals, he was looking for an azer, he was looking for a helpmate. So who was he looking for? He was looking at a cow? What was he looking for? So he wants to say he was looking at the other human beings. Because yesterday, they were his buddies. They were his people. And now he knows that they're different. It reminds me a little bit sometimes. It's not the same process, but it's a little bit the same. Sometimes you become a religious person and you go back to your old friends. And you know, and you, know you like your old friends, but you might see that you're not in the same place anymore. It's hard to connect to them, right? I'm not, I'm not saying you have to break relations, but I'm just saying b'mitzias is sometimes hard to connect to them. So imagine Adam, who was given a godly soul, and now he's connecting to human beings who only have a nefesh bahamis. How do you how do you connect? Not, you're not the same person. You're a different person at this point. You were zapped, right? So that's what happened in Rosh Hashanah. You got zapped with this extra, extra neshama. And based on this, I am telling you so much happy courses today. They're going to fire me for sure. Okay. Uh, but based on this, this is even how evolution may potentially, potentially, potentially be acceptable. So first and foremost, I need to tell you that once again, you've got to be very, very careful. Uh, people make this assumption that evolution is such a proven theory that it's vada'i emes. And then we've got to figure out how to figure out the Torah with evolution. Evolution is very far, even now, it's very far from being proven. And I can, I can show you, maybe I should send you a, a very good YouTube video of three brilliant professors who are basically saying evolution is totally unproven. And what's best about it is these three professors are atheists. They're not like religious people trying to uh, debunk evolution. They don't believe in God, so they have no agenda. They have no bias against evolution other than the pure science. And they point out all the holes. So that's number one. So number one, be aware 
Because first of all, evolution is a violation. The theory of evolution is a violation of one of the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, again, I, I, I'm really, I don't want to walk into uh, things beyond my, my pay grade. But the basic idea is that all systems go from complexity to eventually uh, entropy. Entropy is everything winds down. Now evolution works in the opposite way. You go from simple to complex. Now the natural world goes from complex to simple. Like a human body, you, you know, you disintegrate and you die, essentially. <laughs> That's what happens. So the notion that you can go from simple to complex requires a creator, a conscious agent. In other words, when a person is doing something or God is doing something, so God can go from the simple to the complex. But if you're simply looking at natural processes and you're, pre you're assuming, as evolution assumes, that it's all random, randomness never moves in the direction of complexity. Randomness moves in the direction of entropy. So evolution in many, many ways is a contradiction to one of the basic laws of thermodynamics. Uh, I should also say too that evolution in its middle levels doesn't make sense. Well, let me explain what I mean. When Darwin, right, Darwin was a, the great, you know, he's actually a very eminent scientist, I'm not going to take that away from him. Uh, Darwin, Charles Darwin was the, actually Darwin is also a believer in God, by the way, he, he, was, he was not a, an atheist. Um, but Darwin is the one who formulated the idea of evolution, that human beings come from apes, etc. And, uh, and really all, all these things happen, that all animals come from earlier forms of animals. And his idea was based on natural selection, survival of the fittest. And that means like this, uh, if certain, in any, let, let's, let's take insects, forget about humans, insects, right? So let's say certain insects have a certain advantage if they have longer wings. Now, genetically, some insects will have shorter wings, some insects will have longer wings. But what happens is the shorter wings are going to die out and reproduce less. The longer wings, well, so eventually, where you had main, mainly shorter wings, you'll eventually get all longer wings because of evolutionary advantages. Right? That's called survival of the fittest, natural selection. But here's the problem. The problem is that the way the evolutionary chain works, uh, let's imagine A is a disadvantaged state and B is that advantage. Often there's going to be a middle transitional point. You know, from A you go to A1, and A1 has no advantage at all. There's no reason why A1 would survive. So how do you get to B if you need to go through an A1 and A1 has no evolutionary advantage? So a lot of the middle things are also negations of evolution. So the first thing to keep in mind is that evolution is not a proven theory. There's many, many holes in it. And that is very important. Do not assume, as many speakers will tell you, this is a proven thing. However, even if we assume it was proven, all that means is that the behema aspect, the animalistic aspect of Homo sapien, may have evolved from lower forms, but the divine soul is Hashem breathing it. Okay? In other words, the, the nefesh elokis is not evolutionary. 
it is the direct breath of Hashem. It would be the goof and the animalistic functions that could, could be a product, theoretically, of evolution. Right? So where this takes us, and again, as I say, this is, these are controversial ideas. I'm just throwing them out because uh, you, you know, you, I, think, I think you ought to know them. I, again, if I'm not here next week, you, you'll know why. Um, um, but the basic idea is that there's a lot of things we don't understand. And the most important thing is, you know, Hashem created the world. Hashem breathed into us the godly soul, which is a chelek elokam mimal, as Hasidus teaches. And if you know that and you realize that and you know the uniqueness of man being, of human being being connected to Hashem, then like everything else is maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. You know, I'm not going to go crazy. I don't think you need to go crazy over it because Judaism can accommodate many types of scientific understandings. That's kind of the assode that you need to know. And that's why I go back to the very first thing that I said that uh, Judaism did not have the problems with science that Catholicism did. Judaism is able to kind of roll with the punches. You know, you tell me science, okay, we'll, we'll incorporate it. Now, let me tell you a final point, which is a little difficult, but uh, I hope uh, it'll make sense to you. Not only is science not a contradiction to Torah, but there are many ideas in science that help you understand Torah. And there's a good reason for this. There's a famous Maimer Chazal, Histakel Ba'oraisa Ubare Alma. What does that mean? Hashem, this is from the Zohar. Hashem looked into the Torah and he created the world. World meaning the universe. In other words, the Torah is a blueprint in which Hashem made a structured universe. Which would mean that the physical laws of reality are kind of connected to the spiritual dynamics of the Torah. Like a blueprint tells you how to build a house. Hashem built this physical house based on the blueprint of the Torah. So let me give you one example. I think it's an interesting example of how this works. Uh, those of you that uh, have a physics background will, will appreciate this, probably more, more than me. You know, normal physics is called Newtonian physics. Isaac Newton, great physicist, uh, one of the, really one of the great, great, uh, brilliant scientists of all time uh, in the 1700s. <coughs> and Newtonian physics is called classical physics. And it is what is called a highly deterministic system. By a deterministic system is that if you have the same force on the same object, all things being equal, you will always have the same result. In other words, it's a, he creates a predictable world. Now, things are unpredictable because you don't always have the same force or whatever it is, but if it's the same force on the same object, it's always going to behave a certain way. And Newton identified the laws of gravity, uh, right? later electromagnetism and, and the like. So Newtonian physics is what is called deterministic because you always have the same result. And that's enormously important for life. That's why we, you know, that's why uh, 
we would go on an airplane, right? If, if you didn't have the laws of physics being deterministic, then, oh, well, maybe the plane will stay up, maybe it'll go down, don't know. Now, as it is, things can happen, God forbid. But if you would have, if you would have a world where literally every second would be a different, a different result, you, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't go on a plane, you couldn't take a bus, you couldn't walk across the street. Uh, how do you know that the, the road is not going to collapse under you? I mean, the truth is you don't know, but, but the truth is Newtonian physics creates, so to speak, the framework by which we can live in a world that's relatively stable, relatively predictable. Now, there was another branch of physics that was kind of discovered or analyzed at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, that's called quantum mechanics. Now, quantum mechanics analyzes the behavior of what you might call subatomic particles, meaning things that are even smaller than atoms. That's what quantum means there, subatomic. And in the world of subatomic particles, everything is unpredictable. Sometimes the particle does this, and sometimes it does that, and sometimes it does that. And there's no way of knowing, and all you can do is assess probabilities, right? Quantum mechanics says that reality is nothing more than crapshoots. It's nothing more than gambles. It's nothing more than um, it's nothing more than probability, right? It's probably the case that if I throw something up, it'll fall down, but who knows? It may not. It may decide on it. Well, that's the question. It may decide on its own not to. So you ask a physicist. These are two different models. There's Newtonian physics that's based on laws and determinism. And then there's quantum mechanics in which everything is randomized. And you ask a physicist, which is right? Which is describing reality? So here's what a physicist is going to tell you. A physicist will say, well, Newtonian physics describes big things. So tables, computers, cars, buses, airplanes. Newton works pretty well. But quantum mechanics describes little things where you have chickens without a head running around. Now, I'm going to ask a very simplistic question. Big things are comprised of little things. I mean, I look at this table. Right? This table, ultimately, you get down to atoms. In fact, it's an amazing thing. It's still hard to envision this. Do you realize that there's millions of times more empty space here than there is matter. Most of matter is empty space, the space between electrons and everything else. So you figure, there's so much empty space, why can't I, why doesn't my hand go in here? <laughs> okay, but it's, this is all, this is 99% empty space, right? There's only a little bit of stuff in here. So how can the big thing behave in a predictable way if the little things are all over the place? The answer is that the Bore Olam puts in a coordinating kind of method here in which when this stuff is pulling here, then that stuff will be pulling there. Meaning to say, the reactions are unpredictable, but for every reaction in one direction, the Eberster puts in the reaction in the other direction, so everything gets pulled together in the large plan. So, what does this have to do with Torah? 
This is the key to understanding, or at least identifying, a very, very famous theological religious question. And that is, on one hand, Judaism believes in Bechira. Bechira means, I have, Hashem gave me the absolute power to choose to do good or evil. Right? What do we say? Everything is in the hands of heaven, except the decision to fear Hashem. Right? You know that Gemara, which means, if I want to kill, I want to desecrate Shabbos, I want to eat treif, I want to commit adultery, Hashem is going to let me do it. I mean, there'll be a punishment for states, but Hashem will, Hashem will let me choose to do evil in the world. That's what Bechira is. And yet, we have another idea called Tashkacha Pratis, that everything that happens in the world is the will of Hashem. Nothing can happen in the world without Hashem decreeing that it happens. A leaf will not fall from a tree unless Hashem said that leaf should fall from the tree. So what's going on? How can I have free will to do what I want and have a world, a universe, where nothing can be done that's not the will of Hashem? That's a, it's a question, it's a difficulty. Is this to answer how how it makes sense that big things behave? Well, it's not going to make sense because it's it's, it's still a a question that we don't have an answer for, but I just want to show you that this question about Bechira and Hashkacha is the same thing as the question of quantum mechanics versus Newtonian physics, in which we are like like subatomic particles. So we are running around with our own million decisions, billions of decisions. But Hashem coordinates all of those decisions to carry out his plan. And the point that I'm making is, if this makes any sense at all, I don't know if it does, is that the physical reality is a mirror of the spiritual MS of the Torah. And the paradoxes that exist in the spiritual world that only Hashem can reconcile will find their expression in the physical, concrete reality because Hashem looked into the Torah and created that physical reality based on the Torah. Uh, so, a very, let me take a very simple example. Let's say uh, a guy decides he wants to kill somebody tonight. So he goes to a 7-Eleven, 2 o'clock in the morning, robs the store, and shoots somebody. Now, here's the question. Did the man that pulled the trigger have free will or did God make him pull the trigger? Dover Pashat, Hashem did not make him pull the trigger. That was his free will. On the other hand, did the guy that died, did Hashem decree that the guy would die? It must have been the case. So how do you understand that? Uh, if Hashem decreed the guy would die, but Hashem gave the other guy the, the right not to pull the trigger, what would have happened if the guy wouldn't have pulled the trigger? Would, he, would the other guy get a heart attack that moment or whatever? Like, what would happen? Meaning, <coughs> if you're telling me nobody can die unless Hashem wills them to die, <coughs> but you're telling me <coughs> the guy that pulls the trigger had the power not to pull the trigger and do tshuva, 
So how can something be a decision of Hashem if at the same time it's a decision of that, of that person? So the answer is Hashem is like a shatchan here, meaning to say Hashem will bring together the guy that wants to shoot with the guy that's supposed to get shot. And Einochinami, Hashem is not making the shooter shoot, but if the guy is going to shoot, so Hashem is going to make sure that that person is going to be there to get the bullet. And if the guy would decide not to, then Einochinami, but Hashem kind of knows the future, so he knows that that's going to happen tonight. You see, so this is a way of coordinating. This is truly an amazing aspect of HaKadosh Baruch that Hashem is coordinating the billions and trillions of decisions that human beings make on their own to achieve a predetermined result. And that is quantum mechanics versus Newtonian physics. Okay, so uh, again, this is a little, uh, maybe a little complicated, but uh, this is how science can enhance. Now, of course, on the most basic level, uh, it's been pointed out by going back to the Chodesh Halavavos, that if one looks at how life is created, one looks at how fruit uh, grows, one looks at um, how bees pollinate plants you know, and trees, uh, flowers rather, uh, one will see what type of world HaKadosh Baruch Hu created. And that's, uh, that's something that itself brings you to Avat Sashem, Yira Sashem. You know, there's a statement in Pirkei Avos that if a person is learning and he stops his learning and he says, how beautiful is this tree? He's Chayat Misa, he deserves to die because you're stopping your learning to admire the tree. So when you read that, that seems to be kind of like an anti-nature message. The Kutzke Rebbe says very differently. You know what the problem is? He says when he admired the tree, he stopped his learning. He didn't look at looking at the tree as part of his learning. If he would have understood that looking at the tree is part of how he comes closer to Hashem, then it would be a very good thing. Okay, and that's part of what uh, Tu B'Shvat is about. We talked about Tu B'Shvat a few weeks ago and the like. Okay, so uh, I, hope, uh, I hope this was uh, helpful a little bit. Um, and as I say, I'll, I'll try to uh, get you a material that uh, you, know, you, could, you could read it and check it on it and, and, and the like. Okay, yeah. One more, you just when you were saying the um, micro atoms yeah. moving, and you still are moving in different directions. I guess that's just a theory as to how uh, Newton can be true with quantum physics. Well, that's what a physicist would say. A physicist would say that this is a mysterious. Uh, Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. Uh, again, <laughs> it's an amazing thing that somehow. The, the atoms here sense when the atoms there, not the atoms, subatomic, are going in the, the wrong direction and there'll be like a compensating thing. So yeah, you're going off the derech, but this will pull you back on the derech, like somehow. Uh, and and Einstein, I, actually, Einstein didn't like it. Einstein didn't like quantum mechanics. Uh, he did call it spooky action at a distance. But that's exactly what it is. It is spooky action at a distance that somehow these subatomic things are responding to what these subatomic things are doing. And you know, it gets all gets coordinated into a into a framework, and and the like. Now Einstein himself, uh, fascinatingly, you know, Einstein grew up in an assimilated family. He had no Jewish education, but you know, number one, he very much believed in God. Now, unfortunately, he did he didn't believe in a God that would give us a Torah. That that was that's where, unfortunately, he fell short. 
because he didn't think Hashem cared about uh, what people do. Okay, that, that, that was a big mistake. But in terms of looking at the universe, he said only, only a supreme intelligence could make a universe of such beauty and such elegance. So he was a very, he was very, very strong in his emuna in a mitzias of Hashem, although not an emuna in Torah, mina shemayim. What's interesting though is Einstein was a very rebellious person his whole life, very independent. So when he was twelve, he was flirting with Orthodox Judaism. He was flirting with becoming religious, and I think for like six months uh, he was keeping kosher and keeping Shabbos, and and the like. Uh, but then again, Sechaval. Uh, his parents took in a boarder, a Jewish medical student, whose last name was Talmud, of all crazy things. And Talmud talked him, talked him out of it. So who knows? We, 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 we might have lost a Gadol Hador, you know. <laughs> in Einstein, we could have been a Rosh Hashiva. You know, or or, or whatever, whatever it would be. <laughs> okay. All righty. You all be well. Take care, everybody. Yeah.